really good to, uh, to, to be here, to, to see you, to meet you. Uh, it's great to be able to have breakfast uh, in between the first uh, service and this one earlier on as well. So uh, I'm going to be focusing on that first reading from Corinthians, so you might like to have that open uh, in front of you if you've got a Bible. So it's page 1144, uh, and let me pray as I begin. Father God, as we reflect on your word this morning, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to hear it and to make our response to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Anyone who's been around the church for any length of time will know that we Christians can sometimes get on each other's nerves. (laughs) What's more, it doesn't always take a lot to divide us. It might be typos in an order of service. It might be a couple of misplaced commas. Uh, on the screen. It might be trying to decide what colour to repaint the church building. Uh, I've been to in churches where uh, they, each midweek group, uh, had, and there have been several of them, have had their, each, their own box of biscuits. Heaven forbid that we should share biscuits in the body of Christ. Uh, you know, let's have six, seven, eight boxes. Uh, just to make sure that we don't have to share. Um, and in, in one of, the, one, one of those uh, churches, uh, to continue the biscuit theme, even the idea, because of having biscuits after the service, because uh, they just had uh, tea and coffee before that, prompted a, a couple of people to stop speaking to each other. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't take a lot for us to imagine uh, the kind of divisions uh, in the church that Paul speaks about in the reading that we just heard from this, his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, I once worked for a, uh, a group of Methodist churches in West Yorkshire and surveyed people from the churches uh, to what, and asked them, what, what do you think is, uh, is it that makes uh, Methodism, what it is. What does it mean to you to be a Methodist? And I kid you not, one of the, the, the most commonly uh, received responses I got was, not Anglican. They couldn't tell me anything about what was special about their tradition, just that they weren't the folks down the road. And I think we can be like that so often, in different ways. Yeah, with a good shepherd, not Emmanuel. We're Emmanuel, not the Good Shepherd, or whatever it is. And there are so many different rivalries, so many different labels that we just love to use. Anglican, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, High Church, Low Church, Middle of the Road Church, uh, Evangelical, Charismatic, Liberal, Catholic, Reformed, Emergent, Open, uh, Bible-believing, Inclusive, Traditional, Contemporary, Informal, you name it. We can throw a label at it, and the list can go on. And the sad sad fact is that we Christians could probably argue about almost anything if we put our minds to it. And it's probably a pretty good day in the church where we're arguing about theological things like worship, or abortion, 
or sexual ethics rather than biscuits or typos or flower rotors. But though we say that, Paul reminds us here that there are no non-theological divisions in the body of Christ, in the church. Because if the church is, as the New Testament says it is, the body of Christ on earth, Christ existing as community, then any failure to be community is a failure to be who we are meant to be, who we're called to be, who God needs us to be for the sake of the world. Disunity is toxic, not only to the people who are involved in it, but also to those looking on from outside. It completely discredits our witness. And the breakdown of community among the Corinthian Christians is one of the major themes that Paul addresses in this letter. So in verse 11, that we've just heard, he says that reports have reached his ears of factions jockeying for position in the church, each claiming a different Christian leader as their figurehead. I'm one of Paul's people, one group says. That is, they trace their loyalties back to the person who founded their church. Others were saying, I belong to Apollos. And we know from reading Acts that Apollos was a, a wonderful, gifted preacher uh, and that he went to Corinth shortly after Paul. And still others uh, say that they belong to and followed Peter. Cephas is the uh, Aramaic equivalent of the, the Greek version of his name, Peter, that we use. Well, we don't even know uh, whether Peter ever made it to Corinth. But it's possible that by saying that I follow Peter, what they were saying is, what well, I, I trace my origins of faith right back to the very beginning, to the rock himself. Uh, my faith is the original faith. And perhaps most baffling of all is that reference to those who say, I belong to Christ. I mean, surely that's a good thing, right? Surely that's what they were supposed to say. However, when we read it in this context, the suggestion is that some people were kind of claiming to have a monopoly on Jesus. William Barclay writes that their real fault was not in saying they belonged to Christ, but as in acting as if Christ belonged to them. The unspoken meaning of what they were saying is, well, well we're just following Jesus. I.e., not too sure about what other, you other people are doing. We're following Jesus. And in some ways, that's kind of the ultimate power play in the church, isn't it? Well, listen carefully to what you're saying. Now let me tell you what our Lord says about the matter. And I think this is a, a camp into which uh, evangelicals like myself especially are probably prone to fall. We can be so confident of our own rightness that we easily close ourselves off uh, to the critique of others. Of course, we want to be faithful followers of Jesus. And, and right doctrine, what we believe, really does matter. But we must also be really careful 
to, not to claim that we alone embody true Christianity. And so the, the biblical scholar Anthony Thistleton writes, if Christ is split up so that each split claims to have a monopoly of Christ, how can anyone receive Christ in his wholeness and fullness? I know that uh, from personal experience, that one of, my most one of the most enriching parts of my theological training at college was spending a year at a high Anglo-Catholic uh, church in Oxford. It's certainly not the tradition in which I would say I felt at home, but nevertheless I found myself inspired by the physical, sensory, sacramental nature of their faith. It's not to say that I agreed with all of their theology, because I didn't. But I knew deep down we were following the same Lord. It was the same God we were worshipping. And that, Paul says, is the basis for Christian unity. Paul wasn't crucified for me. Apollos wasn't crucified for me. Peter wasn't crucified for me. John Wesley wasn't crucified for me. Karl Barth wasn't crucified for me. Timothy Keller wasn't crucified for me. Insert your own favourite Christian teacher or leader. They weren't crucified for you. It was Christ who was crucified for me. And no other. And likewise, Paul says, we're baptised in the name of Christ. It doesn't matter who performs the baptism. It could be Sue, it could be me, it could be Michael, it could be Ben, it could be anyone else in this town. It doesn't matter who performs the baptism. It doesn't matter into which denomination you're baptised. What matters is that we're baptised into Christ. Now there might have been a particular vicar or a particular preacher or a particular Christian writer who's been really influential in our journey of faith. But the only loyalty that matters in the church is our loyalty to Jesus. So if you were to go away from here today thinking, wow, Steve is a great preacher, isn't he? not done my job properly. I don't want you to say that. I want you to say, wow, Jesus is a great saviour. The Swiss uh, theologian Karl Popp had, a, had this picture here um, hanging over the desk in his study. Uh, and you can take a look at it after, after the service. It's a picture, of, as you can see, of Christ on the cross. And here in this corner, we've got uh, John the Baptist uh, pointing to Jesus, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. And Colbert, the uh, theologian, says, Every preacher, every Christian leader, is meant to be like John the Baptist's bony finger. It's not about them. It's about where they're pointing. Behold, the Lamb of God. The danger is that we magnify the messengers and we miss the message. The legacy that I want to leave in a church 
isn't that there's a group in the church who years to come talk about the good old days when Steve was there. Don't you remember how great he was? Now the legacy I want to leave is that the people there love Jesus more than they did before I came. Because that's the only thing that matters. Earlier this week, uh, my wife uh, shared with me uh, a story from a book she's reading about a a Christian musician in the States uh, called Rich Mullins. He's probably best known for uh, the song, Our God is an Awesome God. Have any of you heard that song? A few? Well, the book talks about one time uh, that he performed at an award ceremony in Nashville, Tennessee, an award ceremony for Christian musicians. And he played this famous song, Our God is an Awesome God. And as he did, uh, the air of the auditorium was electrified by his voice, by his musicianship. And then the author recalls, at the end of the song, the audience erupted with a standing ovation, begging Rich for another song. He looked at the crowd in a sort of bewilderment and walked off the stage, never to return. I wonder if Rich was thinking that we had missed the point of the whole song. Our God is an awesome God, not Rich is an autumn artist. And Paul goes on to explain in the coming verses that the very definition of success looks very different as a Christian. Success for a Christian is measured against the apparent weakness and the apparent foolishness of the cross. That's success. That's God's ultimate success in the world, a cross. Christian leaders like me are flawed people. And the problem is it's all too easy for kingdom building for Jesus to turn into personal empire building. It's worth noticing then that Paul seems genuinely mortified that there is a Paul group in Corinth. He doesn't want it. It wasn't his idea. He didn't set it up. The church is saved and sustained only in the name of Jesus. And when this truth is kept clearly in focus, petty rivalries and preferences for different preachers are seen in their true light. They are simply ridiculous. The only ground of unity in the church is Jesus. And the message of his death on the cross to deal with our sins, and to restore us to a relationship with God. A.W. Tozer illustrates this wonderfully by asking, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. 
So, he says, 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in hearts nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. In other words, the unity of the church, not just a local church like this, but as a whole, as groups, depends on us keeping the main thing, the main thing, Jesus. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, the author of the biblical paraphrase, The Message, translates verse 17. He says, God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the centre, Christ on the cross, be trivialised into mere words. Paul calls the church to be in agreement with each other, literally uh, to speak the same word, and to be united. Again, that word in the Greek literally means to be knit together like broken bones, to be mended. It's the same word actually that, uh, that's used in the Gospels when the disciples are on the shore mending their nets. To be knit together in the same mind and the same purpose. In other words, Paul's saying, we're all on the same side here. It's the same grace that's the basis of our life, and it's the same grace that motivates us to live Christ-like lives. And the fact that Paul appeals to the members of the church as brothers, brothers and sisters, highlights the point. In Christ, we're one family. In baptism, we've each pledged our allegiance to Jesus above every other competitor for our affections. You know, there are some countries uh, that won't allow you to be uh, a dual citizen. So, for instance, if I were uh, ever to want to become an American citizen like my wife, I'd have to renounce my British citizenship. But I think Paul's making a similar kind of point here. Our baptism is a sign of our citizenship. We belong, first and foremost, to Jesus. Our allegiance to any human leader is misplaced if it detracts from or if it confuses our ultimate allegiance to Jesus. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. The cross calls all sinners in need of grace. And the cross says that all must die to themselves in order to be made alive in Christ. Often I think we're suspicious of calls to be of one mind. Because what we understand that to mean is, I want you to think the same as me. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, be of one mind. Be of one purpose. Not mine. Not Apollos's. Not Peter's. Christ's. Satan loves to divide churches 
because he knows how effective it is at nullifying their witness. One of the most effective ways uh, of sowing division in a community is trying to sow the suspicion of who's really pulling the strings here? Whose vision is it that we're following? And so the call for us to agree with one another and to be perfectly united in mind and in thought isn't a call to bland uniformity. It's not a call fall in line behind me. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to deep and attentive listening to God and to one another. It's a call to come together, to stay together at the place where everyone in Christ is one, at the foot of the cross. Together, as you know, Emmanuel and the Good Shepherd have planted St Barnabas on the Grange Park estate. It's not been easy. There have been plenty of challenges along the way. It's come at a cost to both uh, you here at the Good Shepherd and uh, Emmanuel. And as we continue in this partnership, let's continue trying to pursue the kind of unity that Paul describes here. A unity which isn't based on belonging to Emmanuel or the Good Shepherd, but belonging to Jesus. Let's pursue a unity of purpose in which the only name we hope to be remembered isn't Emmanuel or the Good Shepherd, but Jesus. Let's pursue a unity won through the hard task of prayer, wrestling with God, with submit and submitting our hopes and our dreams and our ambitions to the Lordship of Jesus. And above all, let us be united in trying to keep the main thing the main thing. And let's not let anything detract us from proclaiming Jesus. <laughs>